Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and uh, welcome to our Facebook Live, and I'm coming to you from another planet, I guess, a lot of stars, and uh, to be uh, precisely correct, I'm coming to you from my grandson's room. You can see the beds, you can see the uh, stars, I can show you the toys if you want, <coughs> but I can't do that right now. So anyway, it's great to be here. Like everybody, I'm getting over all this, uh, these coughs and everything, so I hope everyone's doing well. Probably half the people I'm speaking to on the phone now have had COVID or are going to get COVID, and uh, the good news is it seems that the peak for the latest variant has dropped. The hospitalizations, holding steady. People who have been vaccinated are doing very well, and I hope every one of you is doing very well. So if you've been vaccinated, great. Make sure you get your booster. Being vaccinated now means three, not two. And if you haven't got any, well, you've only got two, make sure you have three. It's never too late to be smart, okay? Um, you know, who knows by the next time we talk in a week, someone will say we need four. Remember in Israel, they're looking at fourth vaccines for people uh, who have uh, older, have increased risk. We also noticed that um, even the companies, whether Moderma, Pfizer, have all pretty much made it clear that this is probably gonna be a seasonal vaccine. now. That sounds bad. I know you're going to say, well, you know, Pfizer or Moderma, that's how they make money. They sell vaccines. Well, this is a small part for Pfizer, Moderma. It's everything where they're developing other things. But I truthfully don't believe that they're making these decisions or suggestions based on the fact, oh, my God, let's sell more. They're selling all they can, they can make. So but it's more an understanding of the reality that, that people's expectations should be reasonable that uh, you just may need to get vaccinated once a year, but we've all been vaccinated every year for the common flu. Hopefully at some point, you know, this will have, rather than getting two vaccines a year, we'll end up getting one, they'll have everything put together. Now remember flu vaccines, 40% of the time they actually work. Most of the time, you know, it's guessing what the flu is gonna be and they usually have good guesses, but it's guessing what's 40% is guessing, 100% is not guessing, right? So 40% is not exactly rocket science. So. Anyway, that's kind of the way things are. Of course, um, one of the challenges, um, I did go to a meeting uh, in Orlando in December and in San Diego in November, October, November timeframe, and I went to NYU in between. Right now, no one's going anywhere. Again, we're not allowed to at Hopkins and many institutions probably you're not allowed to, but common sense is telling you you're not gonna go anywhere. And the biggest meetings, ECR has canceled uh, to be live and a lot of the other societies have kind of canceled the GI Society hasn't done anything yet But um, I think in the short term at least through the uh, April time frame. I don't think there's gonna be any in-person meetings I just think the numbers are too high. The risk is too high. You can see companies like um, uh, Delta Airlines today 4,000 of their employees are off because they're COVID positive. So just the sheer numbers I've been to uh, the bakery called the Stone Mill Bakery in Baltimore, a really good place. They have a certain number of employees. It's not like 100. It's probably more like a single digit, high single digits. But they had to close for a couple of weeks, and they're closed right now because they didn't have enough employees. So, so many people are sick that a lot of things are suffering. I know I've spoken to people, even my son uh, in New York, who went to Trader Joe's, which I don't go to, but he goes to, and there was nothing on the shelves. And if you go to Trader Joe's elsewhere, it's, it's true. And whether it's Trader Joe's or Giant or you name your supermarket, there's a very high problem with restocking because the whole pipeline of people moving things around from drivers 
the people loading the shelves. <coughs> if there's no one to load the shelf, you can have all of the things in boxes, but it's not on the shelf. So um, that's, that's a challenge. Now, that's not my talk today. My talk is not telling you what's happening in COVID, but it's hard not to talk about that. My talk today is on 3D imaging. So let me just tell you that we've been doing 3D for 35 years, and uh, 3D is moving along. I think the latest and greatest thing on 3D is surely cinematic rendering, and we've worked with Siemens on that. We've published a significant amount. We're publishing and we'll continue to publish. We're working on things like cinematic with HoloLens to do better surgical planning, and that seems to be great. We're also looking at cinematic rendering with Siemens beyond just CT, which is really the main focus. People have done MR. I've seen a little bit of people who've done ultrasound. But what about multimodality data sets? What about CT PET? That's something I think you're going to see coming along because it has really great opportunity. Can you really uh, immerse people in that PET CT data set? So that should be very exciting. Challenges with 3D imaging, again, uh, everyone's worried about RVUs per FTE. And so who's doing it? We're short of techs, we're short of uh, doctors. Um, you know, it takes time to do. I can do it pretty quickly and get good at it, but uh, it still takes time. And if you're not getting reimbursed well, many people don't do things that are not reimbursed well. So that becomes a challenge. So reimbursement is still a challenge with 3D imaging. I think a key is making sure your referring physician is requested. I think it's very important for writing articles. I think one of the challenges with cinematic rendering but any type of volume rendering, MIP, or anything else that's been around forever is really showing its impact on patient care. Making pretty images is not really enough. We also know that the key is the surgeons, they're planning, but we need to document. We just submitted an article on that with pancreatic cancer. We need to take 3D imaging and move it from, oh my God, that's really good, it's really helpful, what a great image, to saying, hey, here's the impact. Is it changing management in 20% of cases? In renal cell carcinoma, someone mentioned to me there's no documentation. We published on renal vein and IVC involvement. It's more accurate, but has someone published that you could plan better with uh, 3D imaging? Has someone, we've written about um, planning uh, adrenal surgery, but has anyone showed that cinematic rendering impacts whether or not you can predict open versus closed? Can we, will the surgeon work faster? We know from our own surgeons, laparoscopic imaging, laparoscopic surgery, which has limited field of view, having everything before makes it easier and it's the right approach. And with many things, including uh, adrenal, but other things as well, uh, bowel, pancreas, you can predict perhaps if you can or can't do laparoscopic procedures. The last thing you want to do is do a laparoscopic surgery and in the middle say, well, I can't do what I need. I need to transfer it to open. That happens at a certain percent of cases, but you'd like to avoid that. You want to make certain that you're doing the right study, um, the right procedure for the patient. So that becomes really important. So I think that's a big thing for us. We really need to work closely with the surgeons and document where the impact is. And, you know, I think our biggest challenge, like many of you, is we're short-staffed, tightly staffed, getting the work done, and the fact that COVID is kind of tying people up at home, um, and the fact that people aren't going to meetings and presenting enough, 
for as much. So you really need to work very carefully at being able to document the value of 3D imaging when it helps and when it's just something that's really cool. I think you need to do all that. You need also to really be able to do the best 3D rendering. I've seen a lot of cinematic, it looks terrible. You need the right presets. I won't tell you we have the right presets, but we do, we have 180 presets. We spent the last five years working on this, so we better have something correct. So it becomes more and more an understanding of how to do it, and then working with people to kind of come up with the right plan. So I'm telling you guys in private practice, I'm telling you guys in academics, you need to be documenting the 3D and why it's done and how it's helpful. Now, I think with AI, and we've spoken to a couple of companies, NVIDIA, Microsoft, even Siemens, about that, that if I created really good 3Ds on Pancreas, could AI be used to predict based on the imaging characteristics, the contrast enhancement levels, the fatty fat of the patient, the patient size, can it create the best 3D images for me without me being involved? That is, can the computer learn with AI what are the parameters for the best 3D reconstruction for that data set? Now, obviously, it can come up with, okay, here's pancreas, I'm doing 3D cinematic, here's a pancreas and how it should look, but I want how to look the best because I will tell you that I have probably 20 presets for pancreatic cancer, depending on the patient's size, the enhancement, what I want to show, whether it's an enhancing or a lesion like a neuroendocrine versus a low-density lesion like an adenocarcinoma, whether it's something infiltrating or something large, whether I want to show the vessels or I just want to show the mass. So can I use 3D rendering? We've spoken about it as a way of early detection of pancreatic cancer. Can we use 3D rendering as a way of predicting resectability? SMA, SMV, uh, celiac, portal vein, hepatic artery, uh, all of those things. We need to be very specific. There's often a challenge. People are wrong when they go in. So we need to be careful that we can really optimize those things. So that becomes very, very important. Now let's see, I'm looking at some comments and Lidiana says a cute room. Yeah, it's, they just had it redone. I'm sitting at their desk, Lidiana. It's really, this, you know, they went from having a little desk and changing table, now it's this desk and shelves. They just had it rebuilt a couple weeks ago, but it looks very cool, so that's, that looks really cool. And I could show you the outside that they face the World, uh, tr called the World Trade Center, the, the towers, the, the uh, Freedom Towers. So it's a pretty nice look from uh, uh, Lower Manhattan, pretty cool. Um, and Hi Liniana is in, uh, down in Palo Alto. And John Biacchino is working from home, and John's with me this Saturday. I have the extreme fortune, well, working with John is great, but I have the fortune of misfortune this is my weekend and my week of nights and my holidays. So I'm working Saturday, Sunday, Monday from 7.30 to uh, 11 p.m. So it could be a bit hectic, but it's good to have John there, so that'll be good. And then here's Jay from, uh, calling you from Glen Burnie. Hi, Jay. Um, here's someone, um, I'll pronounce, I'll kill a pronunciation. Jacobic Kopasin. 3D is so underrated, but it will reach its few, its full potential when AR enters everyday routine. 
Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of always uh, something you show in meetings and companies have shown and then, uh, you know, it just doesn't get there. I think the biggest challenge is the reimbursement. I, I just think more and more groups, more and more practices basically live and die by reimbursement. That they don't look and say, oh my God, this would help the surgeon. They just say, listen, it's not reimbursed. We're not doing it. It's reimbursed, we'll do it. Things get reimbursed, and then they get they get they get a life of their own. So, uh, remember, we went through this with cardiac seat took forever. We went through this with virtual colonoscopy; it's been taking forever. Three D imaging used to have better codes. Now, what they did is merge the code in, so they'll say aortic aneurysm with three D. It's part of the code, but then it's not like you get more for doing it. Or the amount more you get is so minuscule that if you were looking at it, you couldn't afford to do the work because you're not being paid for the time. So it's very tricky. And of course, the biggest, as I say, proponents of 3D are the referring clinicians. Now, no one asks referring clinicians, what do you need? Uh, that's a challenge. So um, I, I don't have a great answer. I used to have better ideas what to do. I think you just need to be writing the articles. And but writing articles, um, you know, really uh, that shows the outcome change. Let's see, here's Kathy Cox. Kathy Knox, uh, hi Fish, Re retired in 18, but still get my fix watching your videos. Now that's very nice, and uh, um, you know, hope Kathy's doing well. Uh, you know, I guess Kathy, if you want to come back, you know, uh, there's one of the shortest um, uh, people are really short, outpatient, inpatient, uh, northwest, east, doesn't matter where you are, everybody is short technologists particularly great technologists, so it's really a challenge. We've lost a bunch of people at Hopkins, we've hired new people, but <coughs> wherever you are, you know, we always say the same thing, that the quality of your studies, the ability to make great diagnosis is very dependent on the technologist. If you don't have a good study, if the timing isn't right, if the slice thickness isn't right, if the renderings are not correct, all of that is not happening, you get really bad studies, and then you're not gonna make the diagnosis. So. Everything is in the acquisition. I think um, beyond the acquisition, it gets harder and harder. Let's see, um, uh, Vigelov, and it's a shame that vendors keep cinematic rendering locked until paid. Well, I mean, that's true, but I have to uh, be fair is, you know, vendors, uh, for them to develop thing, it costs money, um, you need to sell it, or they're not gonna do it. I think vendors are the same thing. If things don't sell, if they don't make money, uh, then they don't, uh, they're not gonna develop it. I mean, the reason Siemens, GE, Philips, Toshiba, whatever, makes a new scanner is because they can sell more of them, hopefully, that people want the added advantages. If no one buys the new scanners and say, hey, our scanners are good enough, well, then I think, you know, Siemens and those guys are not gonna sell many, they're not gonna have money to put into R&D. And remember, R&D is everything. Without R&D, you can't develop new rendering techniques. So I think that becomes exceedingly important for us. And I think we're very cognizant of the importance of that. Uh, but you need to, you know, so I think for, to be fair to vendors, they need to make their money. Here, Jay Ryan again, Jay Jamie saying the backbone of the, te of the techs uh, at Hopkins remain. And that's true, we have great techs and a great attitude. So I, I think, uh, we're, you know, as physicians, we're very, very grateful and we're grateful also for the text teaching the new text. I think one of the problems you have to admit 
is if you hire new techs, besides you're getting new people and you're losing old people, is the techs who stay have to do more work. They have to do their work, plus they have to be uh, teaching new people. And if they're not teaching, then you know, new people aren't going to get up to snuff. So uh, perhaps, <laughs> I don't decide on the pay, but you almost need to give a bonus to the techs who are teaching the other techs. Uh, so those are all things that need to be done. But if anyone has any questions specifically, on the cinematic rendering, we have a lot of stuff I've been posting online. Um, I will have to admit that. You can see a lot of images in great cases. Uh, sorry for drinking up a sore throat. But um, uh, Lily is posting a bunch of new cases. You'll see a lot of cinematic on our, on our uh, website, ctsus.com. In the teaching files, you can see a lot of new cases, a lot of really great cases. Um, here's Kathy Knox, saw me at the Broad, Broodmore in Colorado Springs in the early 90s. That was early 90s. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was just a wonderful, wonderful meeting at the Broodmore. I, I've not been back there. Colorado Springs, that whole area in Colorado, well, Colorado is a beautiful place. Um, obviously, they've had some issues lately with forest fires, which finally went out in the snow, but Colorado is, is God's country, without a doubt. Uh, and that was a great meeting. I remember my kids were really, really small, but that was a just terrific meeting. So anyway, well, if no one has any questions, then I'll stop there. I'll thank everybody for their attention. If you have any questions, let us know. We are posting on CTSS. Yes, yes. This is our 23rd anniversary this year. Uh, Lily is posting every day starting today, I think, 23 things you didn't know about CTSS that we have on the website that are spectacular with a link to one of those things. So 23 things to know in 23 days. That's just gonna take us out for this month and show you a lot of incredible things you may not know that are on CT as Us. There's so much material, you just may not know it. And so we're gonna tell you and help you find it. Anyway, with that, I'll give John his three thumbs up and I'll see you guys next time. Bye.